presenting this month's special series, Focus on Children's Health on ReachMD, XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Focus on Children's Health is supported by Genzyme Corporation, researching the most challenging areas of medical need. Learn more about one of the world's leading biotechnology companies at Genzyme.com. Your host is nurse practitioner Mimi Secor. The average age of first intercourse for girls in the United States is 16. For boys, it's 15. This hasn't changed in decades. What has changed is more participation in oral sex and other types of sexual activities in teenagers. Recent government studies have reported that 25% of girls aged 15 to 24 have an STD, sexually transmitted infection, with even higher rates in high-risk teen populations. Sex education curriculums in schools increasingly focus on abstinence as the major tool for managing sexual feelings. This surge in abstinence-based programs has had little effect on reducing teen pregnancy or STD rates. What has helped to lower teen pregnancy rates and sexually transmitted infection rates are the use of condoms and other contraceptions. You are listening to the monthly specialty series Focus on Children's Health on ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome, I'm nurse practitioner Mimi Secor, your host, and with me today is certified nurse midwife and certified sexuality counselor Evelyn Resch from Western Massachusetts. And today we are discussing the subject of a recently published book, The Secret Life of Teen Girls, What Your Mother Wouldn't Talk About But Your Daughter Needs to Know. It takes a sexually positive view on female teenage sexuality. Hello, Evelyn. Welcome to ReachMD. Hi, Mimi. Thank you so much for having me. So why did you write this book as an expert on female sexuality? Why did you write this book on the secret life of teenage girls? Well, I wrote it because I was parenting my own teenage daughter at the time. I was also caring for many teenage girls in my midwifery practice, and I also was caring for so many adult women in my sexuality counseling practice who were coming in and saying, I feel like the sexual crisis that I'm facing now is related directly to the instruction or lack thereof that I had about sexual health when I was an adolescent, and the adolescent girls that were coming into my midwifery practice were struggling with sexual health issues who their mothers were completely ignoring, as were many of my healthcare colleagues that they had seen prior to seeing me. So what's unique about your perspective on teenage sexuality, particularly as it pertains to girls? Well, I think that what's unique is that when a girl comes into my office, my mission is not to encourage her to not be sexually active. I'm not focused on discouraging. What I'm focused on is giving her the information and the knowledge that she needs to have the safest sex possible. There is no such thing as completely safe sex, not for any of us at any age. The issue is the safest sex possible, and in the process of doing that, to help her be able to better enjoy her experience of her body as a sexually active person. This is not the perspective that most healthcare colleagues take when it comes to teen pregnancy. Most of my colleagues are really focused on helping kids make the decision not to after the horse is already out of the barn. Well put. And how do you feel we can best promote the healthy sexual development of teenage girls? What I feel we can do is we can identify that their choice to be sexually active is an important one. And whatever they choose and whoever they choose to be sexually active with is something they have to give consideration to. I think that we have to encourage them to 
be responsible within their capacity and to respect the fact that they have that capacity in the first place if they're well-informed and the information comes with a non-judgmental slant. And I also think that we need to be the ones to make the connection between the choices they make now affecting how they're going to feel about their sexuality as they go through time. That there is not this huge cleft between what they experience as an adolescent and then what they choose to experience as an adult. Evelyn, that's important. We're going to talk about that more because I think that's a theme that you know so well from your practice that we can all, as clinicians, learn from. So how would you distinguish between a healthy adolescent sexual activity and, you know, verging on or being promiscuous? Well, healthy, sexually active teen girls are known to be serially monogamous. Now, whether they end up being sexually active with each of the partners they choose in that serial monogamy or to what extent they're sexually active and how they define it is a separate issue. They're serially monogamous, and they tend not to have concomitant psychiatric issues, psychiatric diagnoses, or other significant health problems. The promiscuous teen girl is the girl who's indiscriminate about who she is sexually active with, however she defines sexuality, be it anal intercourse, vaginal, penile intercourse, oral sex, regardless, often has associated drug and alcohol use when she's being sexually intimate with someone, often has a domestic violence component, often has sexual violence occurring, either in her family or in her own life, her personal life with a partner, and tends to have multiple partners at the same time. That's a very different profile from your normal sexually active adolescent girl. And that's very helpful for all the advanced practice clinicians that are listening. Thank you, Evelyn. Also, what do you think about the trend toward non-vaginal forms of sexual expression that many teenagers are seemingly not considering sex? Well, I think what it is, Mimi, is it reflects a trend and a shift in terms of people's consciousness around, number one, safety, interestingly enough, because oral sex will not result in an unplanned pregnancy. And unless we're talking about an oral HSV lesion that's open with a high viral count or closed with a high viral shedding count, people are not going to have a really significantly upsetting outcome, likely, Also, with anal sex, there's a trend now to be more expansive and exploratory about how people express themselves sexually, and I think teenagers are part of this. I also feel that there's a willingness to experience the body in ways that have been otherwise considered non-traditional sexual expression. I don't think these things are pathological. I think they're just simply reflecting shifts in how people identify being sexually active and what they're willing to explore and what they're not. And, you know, the issue about healthy sexuality, invariably in every case, has to involve the absence of coercion. So if you have a teen girl who's being sexually active, who is having oral sex, who is having anal sex, is there an element of coercion? Is she choosing this? If coercion is absent and choice is present then there is a modicum of sexual health there on her part. 
Right. So these are all really important clinical pearls for us as clinicians, Evelyn, so thank you for sharing. If you're just joining us, you're listening to the monthly specialty series, Focus on Children's Health on ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, nurse practitioner Mimi Secor, and I'm speaking today with certified nurse midwife and sexuality counselor, Evelyn Resch, about the secret life of teen girls, the subject of her recently published book. So, Evelyn, what do eating disorders, poor body image, and unhealthy lifestyle have to do with sexual health? Well, this is where the connection between the adult women in my sex counseling practice and the teenage girls in my midwifery practice really is the strongest. What so many teen girls are struggling with in terms of poor body image and when it advances to eating disorders, be they on the end of the continuum of overeating or the opposite end of the continuum of gross undereating and life-threatening undereating in some cases, is that mothers are the single most influential people in their girls' lives when it comes to body image issues. And the kinds of criticisms that adult women have for their bodies are transferred through the ethers, through actual spoken word, through self-commentary to their daughters. So when women are publicly chastising themselves and the kind of body they have because they're too fat or their breasts aren't right or their hair isn't just so or they keep trying to lose weight and they're unsuccessful, these messages are conferred to their daughters. And we tend to think that teenagers aren't listening to us, but the fact of the matter is they're paying very close attention. They may be acting as though they're not listening to us, but they're listening the way that teenagers do, not the way adults do. So when women are very, very self-deprecating, it's very important to understand that this has a direct connection to how their girls see themselves in the world. Now, recent studies indicate that 25% or more of all girls have a sexually transmitted infection. How do you suggest parents deal with this real threat? And also, how can clinicians help parents and teenage patients protect themselves? Well, it's my firm belief that parents of young teens and older teens need to have condoms in the house. I just believe that parents need to walk themselves into a pharmacy, buy condoms, and make sure that they're readily available in the house. Because number one, when parents say to me, well, doesn't that mean that I condone her sexual activity? My answer is no. It doesn't necessarily mean you condone it. It means that what you're promoting is the safest sex possible. And it also means that you speak the language of safest sex so that if your kids have questions about it, they understand they can come to you. The other thing is that, in my opinion, practitioners should have condoms available in their offices if they are clinicians that see adolescent girls and boys. We just need to put our own money into it because we know our health care system won't. And in the same way I keep candy at my desk because it softens people up, I also keep condoms in my drawer so that when I see teenagers, I pull the drawer out, I say, I want you to keep these in your pocket, and I hand her a couple of condoms. Put them in your pocketbook. Keep them in your backpack because even if you're not sexually active now, you know, one of the things about teenagers is they change their mind on a dime. And it's important to have those preemptive interventions, those preemptive strikes, whether you're a primary care provider seeing teens or if you're a parent, because the message needs to be condoms, condom use for STI prevention. They are extraordinarily effective. Candies and condoms. I like that. Candies and condoms. condoms. Precisely. We have the candy dish. We have the (laughs) condom bowl. What resources would you 
recommend to clinicians who want to learn more if they're not sexuality counselor experts like you, Evelyn? The number one website that I totally support and that I completely recommend at all times is Scarletine, S-C-A-R-L-E-T-E-E-N, scarletine.org. It is a fabulous website. It's run by a woman by the name of Heather Karina who is absolutely just such an advocate for teen health. This is a website that's great for teens. It's great for adults. As we wrap up, can you share your website too as well? Yes, it's Evelyn, R-E-S-H, EvelynResch.com. And people are more than welcome to write to me and I'll write you back. Evelyn, thank you so much for sharing all of your wealth of knowledge and clinical pearls today and wisdom with us. It was really a great pleasure to be with you today. Thank you. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Focus on Children's Health on ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Focus on Children's Health is supported by Genzyme Corporation, researching the most challenging areas of medical need. Learn more about one of the world's leading biotechnology companies at Genzyme.com. Genzyme Corporation is proud to support this important programming for ReachMD listeners. Genzyme Corporation does not control the editorial content of this broadcast. The views expressed are solely those of the guests who are selected by ReachMD. To download this program or any program in the Focus on Children's Health series, please visit us at ReachMD.com. How can mucopolysaccharidosis 1 or MPS 1 present? Listen as Dr. Chet Whitley, Director, Advanced Therapies, Department of Pediatrics and Institute of Human Genetics, University of Minnesota, describes a case of MPS-1. Allison was referred to the University of Minnesota Genetics Clinic when there were concerns raised about her skeletal changes, her physical appearance that suggested mucopolysaccharidosis. Allison had subtle facial changes which have been historically called coarsening or puffiness of the facial features. There was some significant curvature of the back or kyphosis or gibbous deformity of the back. There was also a very, very subtle corneal clouding, a level of corneal clouding that would probably escape a routine diagnosis but could be identifiable with a slit lamp microscope by a, a trained ophthalmologist. This led to further evaluations for carpal tunnel syndrome which is typically asymptomatic in a child but are detectable by an EMG. To determine if Allison had a mucopolysaccharidosis, we ordinarily want to take a urine test to measure glycosaminoglycans, or GAGs, in the urine. When the GAGs are found to be elevated, that essentially is confirmation of an MPS or mucopolysaccharidosis condition. Hers were elevated, and that indicated that we should be doing additional confirmatory testing and testing that would determine which of the different MPS types she actually was affected by. When we found the urine GAGs were elevated, we went on with enzyme testing from a blood sample. We determined that she was deficient of the enzyme alpha-L-hydronidase. That defined her condition as mucopolysaccharidosis type 1. You've been listening to the case of Allison, who was diagnosed with MPS-1 by Dr. Chet Whitley, Advanced Therapies Department of Pediatrics and Institute of Human Genetics, University of Minnesota. To learn more about Allison's case and MPS-1 in general, please visit www.mps1diagnosis.com. <laughs>